How do careers evolve? How does the trajectory of a professional life move from one stage to the next? While it's common to think about these journeys in linear terms, many times they are the result of multiple circular iterations. About this and many other fascinating topics is this conversation with Hector Beltrán in this new episode of El Café Latinx. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Wojcicki. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamid bin Khalif Al Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Mora Matassi, doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx or Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Esas son nuestras historias. Estas son nuestras historias. Welcome everybody to this new episode of El Café Latinx. I am thrilled to have with me today Hector Beltrán. Hector is Assistant Professor of Anthropology at uh, MIT. Previously, he was Postdoctoral Associate at MIT in Anthro. And before that, uh, he was University of California's President's Postdoctoral Fellow in the Department of Anthropology at UC Irvine. Hector is returning to MIT now as a professor before he was a student. That's where he got his bachelor's degree in computer science and engineering. After that, he got a master's degree in folklore at the University of California at Berkeley and also his PhD at Cal Berkeley in social cultural anthropology. Hector is the author of a number of publications and has a book manuscript under review currently titled Code Work Hacking Across the US-Mexico Techno Borderlands. Hector, welcome to El Café Latinx. Thank you so much for having me here, Pablo. Such a pleasure to uh, chat with you today, be in this uh, virtual café with you here. And what a pleasure to, to do the talk really um, you know, nice collegial group you've put together and just the structure of the event, how you told me a second ago, how you kind of honed in on these four or five different groups approaching Latinx digital media from different geographies and perspectives. Really happy to be part of the conversation. Oh, we are thrilled that you are with us uh, today. And that was a fabulous seminar. Actually, for those in the audience who have not seen it yet, we will post it live and I highly recommend to do that. So, so Hector, how did it all begin? That is, how was the start of the journey that led you to become an academic? All right, so you're looking for an origin story. I'm, 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 I'm good at origin stories. I think we'll have to start it. <laughs> Let's see, we'll have to start it somewhere where it matters. So I think we have to go back to, um, so as, as you mentioned, this is my return to MIT, right? I was an undergrad at MIT. I studied computer science, but let's take it back even a little bit before then. So, you know, high school, high school years, 
Um, I grew up in the East San Fernando Valley of Los Angeles. Um, if people don't know where that is, we're famous, I think, for, for two figures recently. Danny Trejo Machete is from the East San Fernando area. We have a big mural of him on, on one of our main boulevards. And most recently, uh, Alex Padilla, you know, the first Latinx senator of California is also from San Fernando. You know, he gave me or he presented a scholarship uh, to me when I was coming to MIT. And I was part of the first generation from a high school to be accepted to MIT. So I came here with, with my roommate, um, you know, a, a few years after, maybe, I don't know, five, six years later, I think four or five students from my high school got accepted and they call them the, my, my high school is called Polytechnic High School in, in Sun Valley. They call it the, the poly five or the poly six. I don't remember, but it was a large number of students. This usually doesn't happen. And I joked with, with my roommate or, or, or um, my friend who was my roommate who I came to MIT with from the same high school. I said, maybe uh, we did something right and they're looking for more of us. Or maybe they said, we have to keep getting them and we're going to find at least one good one from that high school. You know, so um, part of the first generation from my high school from that city to come to MIT and you know I wish I had the story I would say I've always been interested in computers and I would take sort of uh, computers apart and was always technologically savvy but really I was just a generally good student you know I saw I saw school as, as, as a way to perhaps do different things than what most of my uh, colleagues were, were doing at the time people like not necessarily graduating from high school um, I saw kind of a, a school as a, as a way of, of escape in some ways. All that to say that I liked MIT when I visited and I chose computer science because I really just wanted a good job. You know, I thought, hey, a computer science degree from MIT, this is going to set me up. Going to be making some big bucks, um, you know, uh, um, sort of stable employment. I can show my parents my, my good job uh, that, you know, their whole, my, my parents are migrants from, from Mexico, from north of Mexico, Chihuahua and Durango specifically. So this is a way to show them, hey, the journey was worth it. My, my son got a good job, went to this school and got a good job. So I graduated from MIT with a computer science degree. I wasn't necessarily sure what I wanted to do or, or you know, nothing was sort of, I wasn't passionate about any industry in particular to choose whether I wanted to work for a software company or what type of what type of company I wanted to work for with with my computer science degree. So at the time, consulting was popular. So I went into tech consulting. Um, they sort of sold me on this idea that I'd get to travel and work for different industries, go to these exotic locations. I said, "Wow, this is great!" I hadn't been you know, outside of the U.S. too much. Other than Mexico, my last semester, I, I spent abroad studying in, in Barcelona, which was my first time kind of out of US and Mexico. And I said, I wanna keep traveling, going to the exotic locations, the consulting lifestyle. I wound up in very exotic locations, such as Bentonville, Arkansas, uh, working for um, a large uh, multinational corporation that starts with W. Uh, you won't have too much trouble figuring out which one that is. And through this large corporation, we had to go um, implement large software systems for companies. So centralize their sort of legacy systems uh, using this software called Enterprise Resource Planning, specifically SAP. 
and it was it was it was it was like systems analyst type of work doing a lot of spreadsheets um you know i it was it was in some ways like not challenging at all especially compared to getting through mit for four years so i very quickly learned that this wasn't what i wanted to do it wasn't very exciting i wanted to do something else um, but then a project came up in mexico city we were going to go to mexico city to keep working on this project I said, hey, sign me up. At least now I get to travel, right? I'm not in Bentonville, Arkansas. So luckily I got that, uh, I got on that project. And when I got there, it was very clear that I was going to be the mediator, right? Between the US consultants and the sort of Mexican workers. Like I was right in the middle, not only translating, but like just helping both groups kind of talk to each other and understand each other. But then they wanted me to do things that just like didn't go with uh, who I was or what I was taught. Uh, like they wanted me to, um, you know, in this effort to save time, they wanted me to convince the workers that they shouldn't come in every morning and like pasar y saludar a todos and say hi to everyone. You know, this was wasting time. Like, why are they doing this? So it was part of this bringing like an efficient um, sort of work style to 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 the project i was like hey this has nothing to do with technology so i started getting interested in culture and cultural differences and i missed school as well like i missed learning i said wow maybe i rushed out of college too quickly i, I should go back and study culture specifically and i think i looked up at the time who studies culture and i found anthropologists anthropologists study culture they travel and i thought oh that sounds cool I quit my job on a whim. I moved to a small city, Jalapa, Veracruz. And the only reason I moved there was because it was easy to uh, take classes if you weren't affiliated with a university. So I had graduated already. And I looked up where you could take anthropology classes um, and they wouldn't ask that you had some sort of affiliation. So I wound up at Universidad Veracruzana in Jalapa, taking anthropology classes, just trying to learn. Um, ended up working on a project for a professor at a, at a research institute named CSS, uh, Centro de Investigaciones y Estudios Superiores en Antropología Social, is what it's called there in Mexico. And the sede in Jalapa, this professor uh, was working on a uh, corpus of folktales from the state of Veracruz, and she needed help uh, building a website. He said, hey, I can build a website for you, help you put this together. She eventually you know, helped me think about where to apply to a PhD programs and graduate school, because I thought, hey, I want to go back to graduate school, keep studying anthropology, connect it to computing in some way. And, you know, luckily she wrote a letter for me and I kind of got back into the world of academia through that route, applied to PhD. I wanted to go back to California. I'm from LA. I, I, I did mention that I'm from LA. So I wanted to go back to California, apply to the UCs, we got rejected everywhere. The only program where I got accepted was to an MA program in folklore at Berkeley. I was proposing that my project was uh, framed around the idea that I would take this corpus of folktales from Veracruz and show you how all these stories were uh, related in some way. There was some underlying pattern. So still a very computational way to think of the world, right? Um, so I got into that program, MA program, Built a very good relationship there, mentor, uh, mentee relationship with Charles Briggs, who's a director of that MA program. And he encouraged me to apply to the PhD there in anthropology. 
And that's how I wound up in a PhD in anthropology. Of course, they tore apart my idea that there was an underlying pattern that would connect all these stories. You know, I learned there was a Russian named Vladimir Probe who had done the same thing for uh, German, uh, Russian folktales and that there were some underlying nationalist and simplistic views to thinking about storytelling in that way. So I got into more of the, the linguistic anthropology side of it. And I, I guess another important part of the story is that a class in fundamental, he, uh, Briggs called it fundamentals of language in context, linguistic anthropology class was what really sort of boom, like really introduced me to a, a critical perspective on language and borders and difference that made me think like, yeah, I, I want to do this. And I, I think I, I can be here in, in the academy and become a professor and teach my own classes. So I think that was a first sort of, yeah, I can do this, you know, as, as a first generation uh, student in, in college, now in a PhD, and that class kind of guided me into a future career in academia. And I guess I'll pause there. I've brought you to how I wound up in a PhD in anthropology. And obviously I can keep going with the trajectory, but I'll, I'll stop there. Um, see if you have any questions or, or, or where you want me to, to take this. No, absolutely. I have a million questions. So um, did you consider other programs for PhD other than Berkeley or your master's and working with BRICS led you to continue there? How was the journey to get into PhD? Yeah, good. So I liked the MA program because it gave me a chance to take classes in different departments and some of the you know Berkeley especially I mean I got to take classes in ethnic studies which is a phenomenal department some of the most revolutionary decolonial thinkers you know kind of grounded um, in that department in sociology in education which was also very empowering for me um, learning from folks in the education department in geography so I was taking classes all over but I felt like anthropology and the, the promise of ethnography and working with uh, communities at the moment, my at, at the time my MA project was with a um, community group in Oakland that identified as indigenous Maya. I was teaching a computing class there and thinking about uh, intra Latinx relations between Mexicans and Central Americans and thinking about La Frontera Sur um, in relation to La Frontera Norte, La Frontera Norte sort of this conversation that was going on in Central American studies as well. Um, okay, so that's all to say that um, out of all of that, I knew I wanted to do anthropology. Um, my mentor said, you know, the way you'll be successful is by always coming back to computing, showing that, you know, your previous work could augment whatever project you're doing. So follow your interest, but always come back to sort of your, what you, what, what, what you have to offer that other people might not be able to. I, I, I like Berkeley. I like being there. I also liked NYU. I like the sort of anthropology of media. And that's how I was introduced to the anthropology of media. Arlene Davila is a great mentor of mine. I reached out to her. She invited me to New York and she chatted with me. And I was like, oh, I could see myself in, in New York perhaps as well. But I thought, let me just try Berkeley this round, see if I get in. If I don't get in next year, I'll broaden the, the net, apply to NYU. Chicago, other places, but Berkeley worked, so I stayed there. All right, so work for masters, work for PhD. Exactly. How, and how then did you transition from 
folk tales to intra Latinx relationships to hackers. Cool. And yes. I understand the connection with computing, but even with, with that connection, why hackers? How did you pick your dissertation study? All right. So I, I actually, this, this is a good story. So, well, to, to me, um, so <laughs> while, I was, while I was working in this for my MA in, the, in this project, I call the, the thesis Echando Le Ganas Across Borders, um, Mediatizations of La Frontera Sur in mainstream media, something along those lines. When I was working with, with, with this community group, we'd go out into San Francisco, you know, ethnography, of, of course, you wind up not only in the space of, of this computing class I was doing, but at parties and social outings and this kind of the, the nice, the fun part of ethnography, right? And as I would, I would go with these folks, a lot of them migrants from, from Southern Mexico, from Guatemala, El Salvador, we'd kind of just go out exploring, go out into uh, across the bay, the organization was in Oakland, but we'd go out across the bay to San Francisco to events, to different kinds of um, spaces and activities. And they'd say, you know, what are you doing? They know that I had studied computer science. And they're like, what are you doing here with us? And I'd talk to them about what ethnography was and this kind of like, you should be studying those people. And they'd point to sort of, you know, uh, all right, I don't know if this will be edited out, but they'd say, esos mamones orgánicos. They'd call mamones organicos, like the sort of Silicon Valley workers, right? Like mostly white, young, like affluent guys drinking their $10 lattes and avocado toast, right? Like they'd make fun of these guys, say, no, go study those guys if you want to be an anthropologist. You want some exotic people, go study them. And it kind of hit me, right? I was like, yeah, you're, you're right. Like I have an MIT degree. I should kind of infiltrate in, in some sense those spaces, like do the work, but I, I could possibly... Um, come out with critical perspectives by, by working in those spaces that I have access to that perhaps other people don't. And that's kind of when, when it hit, like maybe that should be the PhD project. And then the hackathons were really popular in these years. And I thought this is kind of a balance. The hackathon is where a lot of these people go, sponsored by some of these companies. Um, I, also, I also wanted the transnational component. Like I wanted to go to Mexico and, and keep doing work there. And since this seemed to be a form that um, defied borders. The hackathon, again, part of the challenge of studying this form is that it happens, was happening across borders and in all sort of different manifestations. I thought the hackathon as a space is what my ethnographic project will be, and I propose that for, for the PhD. Okay, so because the hackathons, I mean, Silicon Valley and the, the kind of demographics you are describing are not necessarily the same as the demographics of the hackathon. So there was yet another sort of drift, right? So it's a series of drifts from one uh, place to the other. So what were the challenges of doing this multi-sided, multinational ethnographic work? Yeah, pre precisely that, right? That they took on so many different dimensions. I mean, there's a startup weekend that is very Silicon Valley based. It's about building this profitable company. Um, there's a hackathon that might be more left-leaning. There's hacker spaces that make hackathons or, or, or make sort of events grounded uh, or promoting more open source technologies. And when I got to Mexico and I was like, all right, how, how do I start this research? I wound up in more of these left-leaning hacker spaces, the ones people might imagine with, with, to, 
to more align with their visions of hackers, their ideologies, um, you know, people who are using open source technologies, but also uh, very um, conversant in Zapatista ideologies and thinking critically from, from, from below, from the left. And, and I was doing this, but at the same time, there were these hackathons and these, these more corporate events. And I'm like, wait a minute, as an anthropologist, I don't want to sort of just look at one perspective. I want to know why those people over there are also interested in hacking. Like, what does it mean to them? And maybe it's people from different class backgrounds. Maybe it's people with different political ideologies. If I want to be an anthropologist, I have to check out all these different manifestations of hacking. Interestingly enough, when I started navigating what I thought to be these very different spaces, I saw other people from these worlds who were doing the same. The same people that would be at the startup weekend would be in this other hacker space. So um, Andrew Shryak from University of Michigan Anthropology, he says the ethnographic moment is when you meet your doppelganger. So here I had my doppelganger, this person, I thought I was being the oh anthropologist that can belong to different spaces and make these, you know, um, cross, make these crossings across these very different worlds. But there was other people doing the same thing. And I thought, hmm, there's some meaning there. Like what, maybe that's part of the project as well. Why, what does it mean that young people are participating in these very different, somewhat even contradictory um, spaces? And that became your sort of part of the focus of the dissertation and then the book that, that, that followed. So, so you are wrapping up your PhD. Um, did you only consider academic careers or did you consider other uh, types of careers outside of the academy? Yeah, for, for a moment, um, you know, grad school is tough and um, people don't talk about this enough, but I had some rough stints in grad school. I really didn't like it. Um, some of the classes just were, were, were toxic. I... I, I, I was having a hard time. I like wanted to finish as soon as possible. I liked the ethnography, um, but there were times when just the, the, the sort of coursework like wasn't speaking to me, at, at least in, 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 in anthropology and in, in certain ways. Um, so grad school was challenging. And I thought, hmm, if I don't stay in, like, like, I was like, hmm, do I really picture my, I started doubting myself, right? Wow, am I going to be able to get in front of uh, like 300 students and give a class like I was like wow I'm gonna you know have to you know um, take on different techniques to be able to get through those experiences so when I started having these doubts or thinking about all right what would I do if not follow the the academic route I sort of gave it one last chance and I got a summer gig at a company before it was bought uh, by Microsoft called GitHub Mm-hmm. Um, open source software company there in the Bay Area, like really successful, kind of the um, like a very representative company of what hacking might look like in industry, right? Like uh, anti-hierarchical. Um, some of the some some of the like C level folks were like talking about Deleuze and rhizomatic praxis in in their talks. And I was like, whoa, this is. These, these people are not these naive technology producers. They're actually like, you know, brilliant people. So let's go give it a shot. They had a call for doing an ethnography of open source software. So I thought, all right, all right, maybe I could use my skills here. Let's see what this is like. I spent a summer there. I liked it, 
Um, but I also did not like it. Like I knew I wanted to be in the academy. I wanted to keep learning. I like learning and unlearning and relearning. Um, I said, let's, if, if that was sort of the um, best that could be in, 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 in an industry world and I didn't like it, then I need to stick with this academic thing and let's, let's keep trying. Right. So kind of reset myself and said, no, I, I can do this. Let, let me finish the PhD. Let's see what comes out of it. Of course, like job market comes and there's all these also uh, ridiculously high stress levels. And then there, there's a buildup of how tense, how many, how few jobs there are. And like all this kind of discourse that makes you feel, wow, did I make the right decision? Uh, but of course I might be jumping way ahead of here. Like it, it all worked out at the end. Um, and I didn't, uh, I had a no, I had an okay time on, on, on the job market, let's just say. So that's how I stuck in, stuck it out in academia. Okay. L let me, for sure, you had more than an okay time. You, you landed at, uh, one of the prime jobs. Um, but let's open the black box a little bit since you invited, uh, perhaps that's my take, uh, my interpretation invited us. So, so how was the process? We know it worked out, right? And we know your work is stellar and sort of um, will, um, will be seen uh, even more so as, as it progresses. But as you said, there are some rough times sometimes in graduate school and also in the job market, right? So. So how was the process? What, what lessons perhaps did you derive from your experience that other you know, people who are earlier in their careers than what you and I are um, might, might you know, benefit then? Yeah, okay, let's see. So, so let, let's rewind a few years, finishing the dissertation. So one lesson that came directly from my mentor, so this isn't something I came up with, but my mentor directly told me was, get a job or a position and then you put pressure on the committee, on your dissertation committee to sign that thing, because I don't think anyone is going to keep you here in the university if you already have a job, right? So that, okay, that, that makes sense. You know, with the dissertation, people and academics specifically always have something to say. So if you keep sending, sending it back to your committee, they're always going to unpack your argument and send you in different directions. So part of the strategy was get a position send it as few times as possible to especially to some members of the committee uh to 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 get it done and move on to the next step and of course these are telling you the best dissertation is a, is a finished dissertation this is just one step toward the next process um luckily i applied to a um, fellowship in in new mexico at the school for advanced research which does anthropology but also more broadly now latinx studies so for anyone whose work is not quite anthropology, but in some ways related to Latinx studies, it's a wonderful fellowship. It's a writing fellowship for, for a year, and you get to live in, in New Mexico, and this is in this beautiful area, Santa Fe, this beautiful campus, and just focus on writing. So luckily, that really helped me just kind of get down to the writing and finish it while I was applying to jobs. And I decided, at least for the first round, that I would, you know, a lot, a lot of uh, young assistant professors or people on first years in their assistant professorship would say postdocs postdocs be careful of going straight into an assistant professor position once you start teaching and have all these administrative responsibilities it's really hard to carve out time to do your own work 
to work on your book, keep researching, keep doing the critical thinking you kind of get used to in grad school. So I applied to a lot of postdocs, um, just a few jobs that I felt like really had uh, my name on them. And luckily got one, one postdoc, the UC President's postdoc, which is another wonderful opportunity for any underrepresented scholars to apply to. Um, that's how I wound up for a year at UC Irvine. But even before that, and I guess another lesson is, you know, this might sound kind of simplistic and it, does, it doesn't work for everyone, but really just focus on what you're doing, what you're passionate about, not only in the sense that um, you're going to be talking about some of these projects for way too long, you know, like 10 years later, your book is out and you still have to present on your book maybe not 10 years, but less than that. Um, so you're talking about this kind of work for a decade, choose something you're really passionate about. And another part of what I want to say about that is that if you're really into what you're doing, that passion and excitement comes through in the work and people recognize it. And there's different ways to get jobs. People don't talk about this, but there are exceptions. There's all kinds of back doors. Sometimes it doesn't happen through the formal avenues of job applications. Um, you know, a lot of the times it happens like that, but there's also recruitments. And if people like you, institutions like you, they'll do things to get you into their institutions. So, you know, without revealing too much, I just, I just wanna make clear that these exceptions happen. And sometimes when they happen for underrepresented folks, um, we're sort of disciplined to like feel bad about it or something, but these kind of exceptions happen all the time, uh, right? Um, so it's good to normalize these exceptions and know that do your work and back doors, side doors are always there and there's different ways to get into um, the, uh, particular positions. Excellent. Now, we talked about positions as if they were um, all the same, but they really are not. So one, one thing that has been keep coming to my mind during your talk and now is, you know, during your talk, for instance, you uh, drew heavily um, from the work of Christina Dunbar-Hester, who somebody uh, was actually, her dissertation committee was the same as mine in terms of composition. Um, and I know her work very well. So, so she was trained in science and technology studies and works in the communications department. You also mentioned the work of Arlene Davila, right? Um, um, who's done at the College of Media, but also at NYU, Faye Ginsburg, etc. Aline is not really an anthropologist, an anthropologist, social and cultural analysis, and her work has crossed disciplines. You have stayed formally within anthropology, but your work engages um, technology as an object, more the purview, if you wish, of science and technology studies. And because it's computing technology and the role given the role of computing technology has had in innovations in media information and communication over the past 30 to 40 years at this point also engages with you know media studies communication studies etc so I have a practical question and a philosophical question. A practical question is, did you consider uh, academic jobs outside of Anthro, in particular information schools, media and communication, et cetera, right? Ethnic studies, Latino, Latina studies programs, et cetera. That's, and then the, the philosophical question is, 
Anthropology is a very storied discipline with a history that is deeper than, say, communication or media studies. And, um, and somehow, it, it, so the ideas travel a lot, but people don't necessarily travel as far as the ideas outside of the field. So I was wondering your take of whether you would agree with that assessment or, and, and, and what your reflections would be on that. So you have the practical and the philosophical, you can take either or none, uh, however you choose or both. Yeah. yeah, these are great. Okay. So the first, the practical one, as I recall, is that I consider other departments outside of anthropology. So mm -hmm. I think here, I, I, I guess all my strategies, I remember, I'm a computer scientist, so I work in iterations, the first pass and then the second pass. So the first pass was, let me try this thing. Let me, let me try anthropology. I have my anthropology degree. I have my mentors. Um, and I'm legible as an anthropologist, right? Because I hold this, this dissertation that, that grounds me in anthropological theory. So let me try the anthro jobs. If that doesn't work, Remember, grad school was the same. Let me try Berkeley first. And if not, I'll, I'll broaden the net next year. So I think I did the same. First, let's try anthro, things that, that, that are that where I, where I will, uh, departments where I will be legible. And if not, I, 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 I again, more thinking about the, the, the political economy of it and where, you know, you, you're, you're convinced as a grad student by others that there aren't many jobs. And even if you get one job, you're super lucky. So I wasn't going to um, kind of be against joining other departments. Um, and then, you know, there's also, I mean, there's a philosophical question there I, as, as well, like ethnic studies, which I always say I have one foot in ethnic studies all the time, Latinx studies, who you ask, depending on who you ask, what is ethnic studies, you're gonna get different answers as well. But um, I, I think people will recognize what that means, like having one, one foot in, in, in ethnic studies, thinking, thinking from below um, in different ways. So I would never be a, uh, against that. But I was, I was also always told that, um, well, well, okay, I guess the philosophical thing here is I wouldn't be against joy I, I, if i would have made it to the second iteration i wouldn't have been against any job specifically thinking about ethnic studies um you know unfortunately because of the neoliberalization of the academy and the devaluing of certain types of knowledges over others sometimes these departments are um, not very well resourced um, and not very well sort of valued in the larger um um knowledge production landscape so i don't know I, I think what i want to say there is that i wouldn't have been against it but i feel super fortunate to have wound up in a department where um you know i have resources especially in these in these early years in my career to keep doing the type of work i'm doing um and i teach teach classes i want to teach like that's a super privilege right um not, I've, I've been making up my my own classes. Um, I'm co-teaching a class with Danalis Padilla, historian at MIT, the first kind of Latinx class at MIT that we're really excited about. So I, 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 I kind of st stuck with my thing. I think I wound up in the same department and in the right department. Philosophical question. So 
I wrote down here that you said some you said something along the lines of anthropology as a department where the people don't travel the ideas travel but the people don't travel outside of those ideas as do, much as much as they do, do do you just want to unpack kind of, kind of what, yeah. what you mean there my sense um as somebody who was not trained in anthropology is that the ideas are are well read and adopted but um there is um you know, it's less common to find people trained in anthropology who would then branch out and work in other departments um, um, than what one might expect given how far and wide some of the ideas travel, right? And also the fact that the political economy of the labor market is not really favoring. I mean, anthropology departments are not growing massively in terms of faculty and other neighboring disciplines perhaps are growing faster, right? Um, that, that's what I meant. Hmm. Um, and um, I have not done or read sort of citation studies, etc. but it probably is reflected a little bit in the structure of citations uh, and dialogues uh, too, right? Yeah, that, 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 that's super interesting. Um, you know, I've also heard from other scholars, especially in more interdisciplinary fields, um, that like when they invite anthropologists to speak in the department, for example, um, it's only anthropologists citing other anthropologists as if anthropology was the center of the world. So I, if, if that's where you're going, I, I think there's, there, there, there's, there's a sense also that there is some level of pretension in anthropology um or and but i guess the other side of it is and, and i'm thinking like why did i choose anthropology right and for me it's actually pretty simple like it was where i had a mentorship and i had a good mentor and i said this is cool this is a department i get to keep thinking critically um it was it was more practical in that sense but some of the tools of anthropology really spoke to me you know challenging borders taking this position between sides and like looking at like the nuances and complexities of situations, things aren't always so black or white. I like that. And in some ways, some anthropologists were very anti-disciplinary, disciplinary. like they were against boundary work. And, and they were even against defending anthropology. And we see that conversation coming up again, like should anthropology burn down? Like we don't really want to defend anthropology as a discipline. So there's a side of, hey, this is, this is who we are, um, you know, in the academy. And I think always anthropologists come out in defense of ethnography because everyone wants to bring the ethnographic approach and it's kind of the methodology anthropologists want to own and say, no, 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 that, that's ours. And this is why we belong in the academy, especially if certain, certain resources start to be reallocated and departments shut down, like maybe ethnography will save us. I think that, that that's part of it. But also this idea of like not wanting to, to defend the discipline, um, kind of being against some of its colonial legacy, which is, is, is another conversation, right? But I guess two things that I liked about the discipline that I guess come out of this answer is that these border positions and um, kind of against one side of it and against the type of boundary work it takes to, to create academic disciplines. Okay, I'm building on ethnography, an ethnographer of computing and computing cultures. Um, 
in the past, I would say, decade, big data, computational social science uh, have been tied to, this is my construction, rather imperialistic uh, discourses about knowledge production and aspirations to universality and things like that. What can ethnography contribute in an era in which big data and computational social science scholars claim that they can solve it all, right, with the big numbers and big computing power? Yeah, good. Well, the more generative projects I've been involved with recently, um, really listening, listening and working with communities, if this is what um, we want ethnography to be. And again, more closely connected to how ethnic studies positions itself, itself in terms of working with and for communities, but just listening, the different genres of listening, working with communities, like what are their concerns? How do they think about these imperialistic, um, you know, uh, expansions of big tech and big data. So some really cool projects I've been involved with recently with, with Data and Society in New York. You know, mm -hmm. one recent project where we just did uh, a session on, and actually Dibia was in, in my presentation. He was one of the organizers for, for, for that event. Um, and this specific event around storytelling, AI from the Global South, organized by uh, Rigo and Ranjit there at Data and Society. Um, and, you know, storytelling from the global south, rethinking AI from the global south. And guess what? It was mostly anthropologists or a lot of anthropologists in this space because it's about the storytelling. Um, it's about, you know, give, give, giving voice is, is, is a very, uh, has a particular history and it's a, it's a complicated way to frame things, but just retelling um, stories from uh, different locations and different perspectives is something that I think drives people initially to ethnographic work. Okay, and speaking uh, of stories and the empowering, um, you know, effect that sometimes they might have, if you had not only storytelling, but magical powers, and could be granted one wish about how you'd like the study of computing, computing culture, media culture, cultures change. What would you wish for? Yeah, what a what a fun and hard question. And you know, being an anthropologist, I'm going to come back to ethnography, not only because that is one of the reasons I like anthropology. And remember, I'm in. I come into media studies through a sort of anthropology of media, but also, you know, as I mentioned before, why was I even driven there? Arlene Davila's work, one of my mentors when I started early in my career, very influential for me, reading this Latinos Inc. book where, you know, we think the rhetoric around media representations and representations in the media. And here is Arlene Davila and these focus groups thinking about how Latinxes racialize each other, how they're somewhat complicit in these media representations and thinking about all these complex nuances between the Latin American creatives, US uh, Latinxes, like this kind of untangling these, these, these tensions, these productive tensions and how an anthropologist might be able to um, think with these 
populations against these processes, you know, thinking through these sort of contradictions um, is something that inspired me. So, you know, what would I change? Um, to start with, you know, I mentioned representation in there. Well, we need more uh, scholars of color, people from our own sort of demographic backgrounds to be in the academy to do this type of work in the first place. So I don't think this, I would imagine this is a recurring response to this question, like more representation, more of us in the academy um, to, to be able to, to find inspiration and passion in continuing these type of ethnographic projects or scholarship in general that could influence, you know, future generations. Excellent. All right. Thank you very much, Hector, for this fascinating conversation, for sharing your journey and your, your knowledge with us. Uh, it's been super interesting. Uh, I want to thank also our listeners for staying uh, with us to the end. And I invite everybody to join us for the next episode of El Café Latinx. Wonderful. Thank you, Pablo. Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I am Pablo Wojcikowski, your host, and I'm joined by executive producer Mora Matassi. <laughs>